Amen. And on this morning in particular, <clears throat> let's be careful to show our appreciation to the volunteers. Uh, last Sunday, as we were uh, making our way here, uh, I, was, uh, I had to walk here because the snow was so terrible. Uh, and I, I got my car out of the driveway, uh, but then I got stuck in, on uh, Carter Crescent there. And um, walked here, and as I was walking in, I thought, boy, with the weather being this bad, I think it's going to be me singing to Rob and Rob singing to me and us holding hands during prayer time. It's just going to be just the two of us. And then, sure enough, uh, as, I, as I walked in the driveway, there were, I, I don't know how many, it must have been 15, uh, mostly trucks, I will say that, but 15 uh, cars and trucks in here already as volunteers were in here making coffee and uh, setting up the sound system and getting everything ready to go and the worship team. It was just incredible. And I was just freshly reminded that we are well served in this congregation by some of the best volunteers you're going to find anywhere in the world. So we've just shown our appreciation to the CM team, but let's show it just in general to all those who serve us so well in this place. Well, good morning, church. Uh, great to be with you. Happy New Year. Uh, you look a little bleary-eyed, uh, but we'll let that go. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah 14, 1 to 21. In some years past, uh, we did, we, we've, uh, I'm not, uh, the great thing about being a Baptist is you don't have to be beholden to traditions, but you're welcome to appreciate them. And I would say that's been kind of my approach. And so uh, about half, maybe three quarters of the years uh, that I've been here over the last 17 years, we've done like a full traditional Advent, four uh, Sundays in Advent, then you have Christmas Sunday, and then after Christmas Sunday, you're, you're done. And, uh, and you can, you know, so what that means is that New Year's Sunday uh, is typically a one-off. You don't jump right back into your series because people are traveling and whatnot. But this year we did a little bit differently, and partly we did that because um, of the way the Sundays fell, with one Sunday on, on December 25th and then another Sunday on January 1st. We thought, let's, let's kind of envision a four-Sunday approach to the entire Advent theme. And so if you were thinking, well, this is going to be a sermon on New Year's resolutions or why you should start a Bible reading plan or, or some other sort of one-off topic, actually, we're, we're still in the Advent theme. You've heard me say many times before, Advent is a word that means coming. And uh, traditionally, over the Christmas season, it has been the practice of the church to focus on both the comings of the Lord. <clears throat> and there's good reason for that, theologically. If you're a Bible reader, you know. The Old Testament actually doesn't distinguish as clearly what great events associated with the coming of the Lord, what, whether these great events are associated with the first coming or the second coming. In fact, that's kind of the mystery. If you've ever read the New Testament and you've wondered, why is it that everyone in the New Testament is so versed in the Old Testament, right? I mean, the original hearers of the Gospels were all Jewish people who had been raised in the Old Testament stories. Why is it that they did not universally recognize and celebrate Jesus? <clears throat> because some do and some don't. I mean, that, that's the sort of narrative tension in the Gospels. And the reason really is, is because of this mystery. The Apostle Paul is the one who starts calling it a mystery. This mystery of the, of the two comings. The, the Old Testament talked about the coming of the Christ in fairly cataclysmic terms, that it would in essence end this world and, and begin a new world. 
And so, you know, John the Baptist, because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and, so, and he knew he was the forerunner. So he kind of goes out to the street, and he says, you remember his famous line? The axe is laid at the root of the tree. That's, that's not a Christmas message, is it, right? Like, well, I suppose it is if you're cutting down a Christmas tree. I take that back. But John didn't mean it in that sense. He was like, the Messiah has come to cut down the tree. Everything you knew about reality is over, and, and there'll be a new world on the other side. He's, the Messiah has come to destroy. And then, of course, you probably remember, if you keep reading the, the gospel story, John the Baptist was, was kind of shook, wasn't he, by the ministry that Jesus exercised. Jesus kind of goes around very graciously, mercifully including people, welcoming them in, giving them this chance to repent. Not a lot of cutting down the tree. And so at one point, John the Baptist actually sends messengers to Jesus saying, you know, are, are you the one to come or is there another? Like, what's going on with your coming? But of course, that's, that's the mystery. The mystery in the New Testament is that Jesus graciously came the first time to extend an invitation, to give all of us the opportunity to be in the right place and, dare I even say, on the right team when he comes again, when he comes climactically. That's the mercy of the gospel, that before he comes as king, before he comes on the white horse, he comes on a donkey, offering peace, the opportunity to be reconciled. And so, again, theologically, it has always made sense to the church to speak about these comings together, because they really, even though they're separated by 2,000 years, and who knows, maybe 3,000 years, we don't know exactly when Jesus will come back, but even though they're separated by a great gulf of time, they, they are still properly seen through one lens. And so we're speaking about coming, and have been over these last several weeks. And we've been taking our cues each week from the great Advent carol, Joy to the World. I'm sure you know that uh, Joy to the World was written with that two comings mindset. So sometimes you're reading the verse and you feel like this is the greatest Christmas carol ever. And then you're reading another verse and you're like, I think this is about Armageddon. Like this is not uh, your typical Christmas theme. And it's because they all come together. We're guided this morning by verse four, which says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So that's the end of the story, isn't it? And, and that's the, the climax, when all of the nations are doing exactly what Jesus the King wants them to be doing, when everything is going according to plan and God is glorified in all. That's, that's the end of the story. And that is the climax of the book of Zechariah. The climactic verse in Zechariah is generally recognized by all the commentators and scholars as Zechariah 14.9 which says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. That expression there, the Lord will be one, and his name one, means that on that day, the great day, he will be the one and only one who is worshiped in all the earth. Every idol will have been cast down. Every rebel will have been cast out. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Are you looking forward to that day, church? Yeah, me too. Zechariah 14 is about the coming of the Lord that makes that vision a reality. It is about the great climactic 
intervention of God on the last day. Old Testament scholar Brian Gregory says here, on that day, the prophets proclaimed, the Lord would intervene with a jolt into history in order to fight for his people and to judge the nations. This cataclysmic intervention is precisely what is in view in the final chapter of Zechariah. I like that. Intervene with a jolt. When you read Zechariah 14, you're going to understand that's exactly what this is. And that's exactly what we need, isn't it? Because things are looking pretty grim out there, and they don't seem to be getting any better. Now, as Christians, we know that the absolute end of this story is absolutely marvelous. Uh, we've, we've heard sermons. We've grown up on sermons about the streets of gold. Uh, we, we've been promised that that every man, every, every person will sit under their own fig tree and eat from their own vine. We, we've heard stories of wedding banquets, resurrection bodies, rivers of life, trees of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nation. It sounds absolutely marvelous. But how do we get there? What is the cataclysmic intervention? What is the great jolt that will transform this world into that world? And that's the question we're looking at today. And Zechariah 14 is the perfect passage to facilitate that conversation. There, there are a number um, of cataclysmic coming, climactic coming passages that we could look at from the Bible. We could look at Revelation 19. We could look at Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Uh, we could look at Isaiah 63, 1 to 6. All of these passages are depicting the same great event. They're all talking about the great climactic coming of the Lord. In a sense, they're like transparency slides. Uh, I realize that illustration makes no sense to anyone under 40, but um, do you remember transparency slides back when all the world was gold and sunshine? Uh, so back before PowerPoint and computers and all that, uh, when, when I was a, a kid in school, you used to have a transparency slide, and it was a, it was a piece of it looked like a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, I think, probably, and, uh, but it was see-through plastic, and you would write on it, and then you'd stick it on the transparency machine, and it would uh, put your, project your whatever the teacher had written, if the teacher knew how to use it and didn't write things backwards and upside down, uh, which happened frequently. Um, but so these, are, these, these various visions of the end are like transparency slides, meaning each, each one of these slides adds a little color and detail. And when they're placed on top of each other, meaning when you read them all together, they, they tell a tremendous story. Zechariah 14 is one of these transparency slides. And in fact, I would argue it might be the most detailed of the bunch. And as we read it, we ought to be able to identify seven major themes associated with this climactic intervention of the Lord. Now, I want to warn you, moms and dads, uh, that there is some adult language in the first couple of verses of this passage. This is, after all, a climactic intervention, which means it comes at the darkest moment, literally the maximally darkest moment. And the language of the text reflects that. So if you have little ones uh, with you in the service, now would be a good time to distract them with a piece of candy or whatever it is you use to distract kids. Uh, now might be a good time to hustle them down to the nursery. I leave that up to you, obviously. I'm just telling you in advance, this is a grown-up passage. 
but it is in the Bible, and therefore we believe that it is there for our good. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord will come. The Lord my God will come. And all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots 
in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Cornerstone U uh, class that we ran on the book of Zechariah, I mentioned that these apocalyptic visions are much more similar to paintings than they are to pages in the phone book. Uh, you know, th- there are parts of the Bible that you don't you know, n- need a, a hermeneutical approach in order to properly interpret, right? The seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to the secret meaning of that text? Uh, it means do not commit adultery, right? The seventh commandment is like reading a page out of the phone book. It's just pretty straightforward. Apocalyptic visions, though, are not quite like that. Uh, they are more like Impressionist paintings. Um, they're telling a story. They're speaking generally. Apocalyptic imagery is generally used in the Bible to speak about ultimate realities. And in this case, it is being used to speak about the great climactic intervention of God, which fundamentally reorders all life and reality. Now, as I mentioned above, I think we can clearly identify seven major themes in this depiction. I imagine you heard each one of these as we read through the text. The first theme we meet in the narrative is the theme of a great reversal. We begin to encounter this theme at verse 1. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. So if we were going to try and turn this painting into a movie, the first scene would show the covenant community at its absolute nadir, at its absolute low point. The people of God are defeated. They are despoiled. The nations have triumphed over them, or so it appears. The nations certainly believe that because they begin to divide the spoil. So churches have been seized and sold. Assets have been confiscated and redistributed. The world believes itself in absolute power over the covenant community. They have surrounded her, assaulted her, and despoiled her. Now look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. That's the turning point. That's the climactic, cataclysmic intervention, and it results in a complete reversal of fortune. Look down at the second half of verse 14. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. Are you seeing that? That's a complete reversal. At the start of the story, in verse 1, in the opening scene, as it were, all the possessions of the church, all the wealth of the covenant community has been seized and is being redistributed. Now here in verse 4, all the wealth of all the nations of the world has been collected. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. What's the text saying? The text is saying that when the Lord comes, he will give back all that the enemy has taken. If you are faithful to him, if you persevere to the end, if you endure, you will lose nothing. More than that, you will gain the entire world. 
the coming of the Lord affects a great reversal. And the coming of the Lord affects a great deliverance. That's the second theme. Obviously, these are overlapping. When all hope seems lost, when every light in the heavens has gone out, when the strength of the church has failed, when her assets have been seized, when her people scattered, when her most vulnerable members have been abused and despoiled, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. This is the great deliverance that turns the tide of the last battle. Now, if you're a Tolkien fan, you know that Tolkien often incorporated biblical imagery into his great meta-narratives. And so this is Gandalf arriving on his white horse, cresting the hill with all the riders of Rohan on the east at first light on the morning of the fifth day. When all hope is lost, when the last few survivors are huddled up in the last remaining stronghold with the enemy banging and battering relentlessly at the door, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This vision in Zechariah is depicting the exact same scene as the vision in Revelation 19, where John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this is no longer gentle Jesus, meek and mild, riding on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. This is no wonky donkey. This is the white horse, and he is swinging a sword. He is judging and making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's an old word for crowns. It means he has all authority. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Seeing that? This is Jesus taking the field in space and time on our behalf when things are at their very darkest. This is deliverance and rescue on a cosmic scale. And that leads us to our third major theme, the theme of disruption. Look at verses 6 to 7. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. So significant is this cataclysmic intervention that it actually disrupts the natural functioning of the cosmos. Brian Gregory says here, in God's promise to Noah, do you remember the Noahic covenant? Pause for a second. We'll finish the quote in just a second. You can leave it there. Christian young people, you go to schools where they, they, they operate and they project and they prophesy, as it were, without reference to the Word of God. And so they tell you, you know, things are getting worse in the environment. And they, they paint a picture of a cataclysm. There is such a thing as a secular apocalypse. It's an environmental apocalypse. 
But here's what's interesting. The Bible actually says, things, things may get better and worse, the Bible actually does acknowledge that sinful humanity leaves a terrible scar. All creation is groaning because we are not who we should be. So the Bible acknowledges environmental degradation, environmental stress, but actually the Noahic covenant in the book of Genesis says that the earth, the natural system, will never fail until God's purposes have been completed on the earth. Seed time and harvest will continue without break until the cataclysmic intervention of the Lord. The Bible promises that. And here the Bible is, in essence, indicating that that promise is now fulfilled. So listen to what Gregory says. In God's promise to Noah, he had promised that the normal rhythms of seasons and days would not cease for as long as the earth endures, Genesis 8, 28. To claim then that the eschatological battle would produce a time of continuous daytime without frost was to declare that this vision is the long-awaited goal of history. Close quote. The invasion of Jesus Christ into the realm of time from the throne room of God in all his eternal glory is disruptive on a cosmic scale. It overwhelms the natural cycle. It snaps the wires and blows the fuses. It creates more than a wrinkle in time. It seizes the gears and shuts down the entire system. But this is not a descent into darkness and chaos. It is rather an ascent into order and light. For at evening, the end of this time of coming, the end of this event, there shall be light. The book of Revelation picks up this theme as well. In Revelation 22.5, it says, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. With the coming of Christ, the old world is gone, and the new world is come, and thanks be to God, there is light and only light forevermore. We hear more about this new world in verse 8, which focuses our attention on the theme of renewal. Verse 8 says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Zechariah 14.8. I bet you if I showed you that verse but didn't tell you where it was from, you would guess it was from Revelation 21 or 22, wouldn't you? If you read commentaries on the book of Revelation, they will tell you that an incredible amount of the imagery in the book of Revelation is actually lifted and repurposed from the book of Zechariah. Certainly the case here. John, in Revelation 22, mentions a river flowing out from Jerusalem. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamp through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The coming of the king cracks the world and reorders the cosmos. A stream is opened that brings life and renewal to all it touches. We reach the summit of this depiction in verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name 
1. This is the world reordered and renewed to the original design and purpose. This is everything flourishing under the lordship of God. This is the end for which Christ came and comes. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Christ's climactic coming to conquer all and to bring all in subjection to God. And he speaks about this exact same ending. He says, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who puts all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Do you see that? Jesus came to bring back all these rebels, all these fractured parts, to bring them all back under himself, under God, that God might be all in all. That is the end, that the Lord would be one and his name one in all the earth. That's the end. That was the design, that was the intent, that is the goal, and that is the future. Thanks be to God. So we see the world renewed and restored, and then, of course, that will involve, that must involve, the theme of judgment. We began to encounter that theme in verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Just pause here. In apocalyptic literature, in apocalyptic visions, typically they're painting scenes of the future by lifting colors from canvases in the past. So they're saying, well, it'll be like this by reference to that. The two major events in in focus in Zechariah in all the depictions of future redemption and judgment are typically the exodus and then also the invasion of Sennacherib in the 8th century, the siege of Jerusalem. So, for example, in, in... we didn't have time, we kind of breezed over it, but just so you can see, you probably noticed we skipped over verses 4 and 5 where they talk about the mountains to the east splitting so that the people can escape. Well, what is that? That's a, a bigger, greater, more dramatic exodus. How do the people of God escape from Egypt? They, the Lord split, same Hebrew word, by the way, split the Red Sea. Well, now He's going to split a mountain. You thought the last great redemption was something? The next great redemption is even greater, not just water being split, but now stone. It's, it's a way of saying, like that, only bigger. Here's another like that, only bigger. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, as I said, apocalyptic imagery, visions, they tell a story about the future by using imagery from the past. This imagery comes from the invasion of Sennacherib in the 8th century. That's the Assyrians. They surrounded Jerusalem. You remember that story. It's told in the Bible. In fact, we read that not too long ago. If you're using the RMM, which Pastor Steve spoke about and commended to you uh, last week, we read this story in Second Chronicles 32, 21. It says, And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So, biggest, apparently, historians tell us it was the largest army, land army ever assembled in ancient history up until that point. And it came around Jerusalem, this walled city on a mountain. It came around it like a, like a flood of water coming around a high rock in the sea. 
And there was no hope, humanly speaking, for Jerusalem. But then, the Bible says, one night an angel of the Lord went out, when all hope was lost, when every possibility of victory seemed unlikely in the extreme, and killed this, destroyed this great army. There's a far more graphic description of that in Isaiah 37, 36, which says, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So in the 8th century, in the past, in the past, from where Zechariah is writing, there was a great army surrounding the city of Jerusalem, ready to snuff out the life of the covenant community forever, and then all of the sudden, they were all dead bodies. The angel of the Lord went out and killed them where they stood. It will be like that, only bigger, Zechariah says. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths." There can be no new creation without the curse and stain of sin being forever obliterated and destroyed. As we spoke about last Sunday, in his first coming, Jesus absorbed all the sin of his people. Every sin that you've ever confessed was hung on Christ, absorbed by Christ. He became sin, the Bible says. So he absorbed and obliterated all the sins of his people in his first coming. Here in his second coming, he obliterates and abolishes all sin remaining in the world wherever and in whomever it is harbored. As Jesus said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do you see how these are just two different ways of explaining and describing exactly the same thing? Old Testament and new, there is no new creation without fire. And brings us to our sixth and penultimate theme, the theme of worship. Look at verses 16 to 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain, and there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. When the plague of God falls, all those who oppose God will melt away, leaving behind only those who worship Him, and so worship Him they will. Year after year, they will go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Booths. Why this feast in particular? Anthony Patterson says, hopefully here, the festival, the Feast of Booths, is, is elsewhere associated with the temple and includes the foreigners sharing in the blessings of God. So that makes sense. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths did not involve any sacrifices for sin, which would obviously not be appropriate any further, but it does involve 
the foreigners sharing in the blessings of God. How fitting. In Christ we are grafted in, and in eternity we will worship the Lord together as one. Now the vision makes that point in fairly dramatic fashion. It says everyone goes up, right? Every, everyone worships, and those who don't are punished. Now, I don't think that we're to assume that even after the great renewal, even after the return of Christ, there might be some family somewhere or some nation somewhere that would refuse to worship the Lord. Rather, I think this is a poetic and colorful way of stressing the universality of worship and devotion in the age to come. Most of the commentators take that approach. McComiskey, for example, says here, again, a hypothetical illusion underscores the prophet's efforts to convey a sense of absoluteness. Everyone will worship. To refuse would be unthinkable. That leads us to our final theme, the theme of universal holiness. Look at verses 20 to 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So in the new heavens and the new earth, the point is being made that there will be no distinction between the holy and the common, because the Lord will be all in all. Horses will, will, will be as, as holy as the altar. E everything there will be like the holiest thing we can imagine here. Horse like the altar. The, the pots in the house like the, like the bowls before the altar. There, there shall be no traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. No one will be there for the wrong reason. No one will be there with ill intent. No one will be there to take or abuse. All such people will have been removed and the taint of their influence cleansed. Again, we see the same thing at the very end of the book of, the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, 14 to 15 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That is the absolute end of the story. Old Testament and New. Whether depicted with some shadow or whether spoken of with greater light, that is the absolute end of the story. And it is the beginning of a new story toward which all of history has been moving. A blight removed, a people healed, a universe restored, and a king enthroned and enjoyed forever and ever and ever. Amen. Joy to the world, brothers and sisters. The Lord is come. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had over these last several Sundays to think again about your intervention in history, to think about the way you did intervene with a jolt in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and the way you will intervene again with a jolt on that day. 
Lord, history will not just carry on. Scoffers have always said the world will carry on just the way it always has. But Lord, we remember that you are the God who intervenes. You intervened regularly in the Old Testament. We think of the flood. Lord, we think of the angel that went out. Lord, you are the God who intervenes. You intervene climactically in Christ at Christmas, and you will intervene yet once more. Yet once more, the Lord will shake the earth, and on the other side, life, health, renewal, peace, and abundance forevermore. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.